Treasure Island, Disc 4. Chapter 19. Narrative resumed by Jim Hawkins. The Garrison in the Stockade. As soon as Ben Gunn saw the colours, he came to a halt, stopped me by the arm and sat down. Now, said he, there's your friends, sure enough. Far more likely it's the mutineers, I answered. That, he cried, why in a place like this, where nobody puts in but gentlemen of fortune, silver would fly the Jolly Roger, you don't make no doubt of that. No, that's your friends. There's been blows too, and I reckon your friends has had the best of it. And here they are ashore in the old stockade, as was made years and years ago by Flint. Ah, he was the man to have a headpiece, was Flint. Barring rum, his match were never seen. He were afraid of none, not he, only silver. Silver was that genteel. Well, said I, that may be so, and so be it. All the more reason that I should hurry on and join my friends. Nay, mate, returned Ben. Not you. You're a good boy, or I'm mistook. But you're only a boy, all told. Now, Ben Gunny's fly. Rum wouldn't bring me there. Where you're going, not rum wouldn't, till I see your born gentleman and gets it on his word of honour. And you won't forget my words. A precious sight, that's what you'll say. A precious sight more confidence. And then nips him. And he pinched me the third time with the same air of cleverness. And when Ben Gunn is wanted, you know where to find him, Jim. Just where you found him today. And him that comes is to have a white thing in his hand. And he's to come alone. Oh, and you'll say this. Ben Gunn, says you, has reasons of his own. Well, said I, I believe I understand. You have something to propose, and you wish to see the squire or the doctor, and you're to be found where I found you. Is that all? And when, says you, he added, why, from about noon observation to about six bells. Good, said I, and now may I go? You won't forget, he inquired anxiously. Precious sight and reasons of his own, says you. Reasons of his own, that's the mainstay. It's between man and man. Well then, still holding me, I reckon you can go, Jim. And, Jim, if you was to see Silver, you wouldn't go for to sell Ben Gunn. Wild horses wouldn't draw it from you. No, says you. And if them pirates camp ashore, Jim, what would you say but there'd be widders in the morning? Here he was interrupted by a loud report, and a cannonball came tearing through the trees and pitched in the sand not a hundred yards from where we two were talking. The next moment each of us had taken to his heels in a different direction. For a good hour to come, frequent reports shook the island and balls kept crashing through the woods. I moved from hiding place to hiding place, always pursued, or so it seemed to me, by these terrifying missiles. But towards the end of the bombardment, though still I durst not venture in the direction of the stockade where the balls fell oftenest, I had begun, in a manner, to pluck up my heart again, and after a long detour to the east, crept down among the shoreside trees. The sun had just set. The sea breeze was rustling and tumbling in the woods and ruffling the grey surface of the anchorage. The tide, too, was far out, and great tracts of sand lay uncovered. 
The air, after the heat of the day, chilled me through my jacket. The Hispaniola still lay where she had anchored, but sure enough, there was the Jolly Roger, the black flag of piracy flying from her peak. Even as I looked, there came another red flash and another report that sent the echoes clattering, and one more round shot whistled through the air. It was the last of the cannonade. I lay for some time watching the bustle which succeeded the attack. Men were demolishing something with axes on the beach near the stockade. The poor jolly boat, I afterwards discovered. Away near the mouth of the river, a great fire was glowing among the trees, and between that point and the ship, one of the gigs kept coming and going, the men whom I had seen so gloomy shouting at the oars like children. But there was a sound in their voices which suggested rum. At length I thought I might return towards the stockade. I was pretty far down on the low sandy spit that encloses the anchorage to the east and is joined at half water to Skeleton Island. And now, as I rose to my feet, I saw some distance further down the spit, and rising from among low bushes an isolated rock, pretty high and peculiarly white in colour. It occurred to me that this might be the white rock of which Ben Gunn had spoken, and that some day or other a boat might be wanted, and I should know where to look for one. Then I skirted among the woods until I had regained the rear or shoreward side of the stockade, and was soon warmly welcomed by the faithful party. I had soon told my story, and began to look about me. The log-house was made of unsquared trunks of pine, roof, walls, and floor. The latter stood in several places as much as a foot or a foot and a half above the surface of the sand. There was a porch at the door, and under this porch the little spring welled up into an artificial basin of a rather odd kind, no other than a great ship's kettle of iron, with the bottom knocked out and sunk to her bearings, as the captain said, among the sand. Little had been left besides the framework of the house, but in one corner there was a stone slab laid down by way of hearth and an old rusty iron basket to contain the fire. The slopes of the knoll and all the inside of the stockade had been cleared of timber to build the house, and we could see by the stumps what a fine and lofty grove had been destroyed. Most of the soil had been washed away or buried in drift after the removal of the trees. Only where the streamlet ran down from the kettle, a thick bed of moss and some ferns and little creeping bushes were still green among the sand. Very close around the stockade, too close for defence, they said, the wood still flourished high and dense, all of fir on the land side, but towards the sea with a large admixture of live oaks. The cold evening breeze, of which I have spoken, whistled through every chink of the rude building and sprinkled the floor with a continual rain of fine sand. There was sand in our eyes, sand in our teeth, sand in our suppers, sand dancing in the spring at the bottom of the kettle, for all the world like porridge beginning to boil. Our chimney was a square hole in the roof. It was but a little part of the smoke that found its way out, and the rest eddied about the house and kept us coughing and piping the eye. Add to this that Gray, the new man, had his face tied up in a bandage for a cut he had got in breaking away from the mutineers, and that poor old Tom Redruth, still unburied, lay along the wall, stiff and stark, under the Union Jack. If we had been allowed to sit idle, we should all have fallen in the blues, but Captain Smollett was never the man for that. All hands were called up before him, and he divided us into watches, the Doctor and Gray and I for one, the Squire, Hunter and Joyce upon the other. 
Tired though we all were, two were sent out for firewood. Two more were set to dig a grave for Redruth. The doctor was named Cook. I was put sentry at the door, and the captain himself went from one to another, keeping up our spirits and lending a hand wherever it was wanted. From time to time the doctor came to the door for a little air, and to rest his eyes, which were almost smoked out of his head, and whenever he did so he had a word for me. "'That man Smollett,' he said once, "'is a better man than I am, and when I say that it means a deal, Jim.' Another time he came and was silent for a while. Then he put his head on one side and looked at me. "'Is this Ben Gunn a man?' he asked. "'I do not know, sir,' said I. "'I am not very sure whether he's sane.' "'If there's any doubt about the matter, he is,' returned the doctor. "'A man who has been three years biting his nails on a desert island, Jim, "'can't expect to appear as sane as you or me. "'It doesn't lie in human nature. "'Was it cheese you said he had a fancy for?' "'Yes, sir. Cheese,' I answered. "'Well, Jim,' says he, "'just see the good that comes of being dainty in your food.' "'You've seen my snuff-box, haven't you? "'And you've never seen me take snuff, "'the reason being that in my snuff-box "'I carry a piece of Parmesan cheese, "'a cheese made in Italy, very nutritious. "'Well, that's for Ben Gunn.' "'Before supper was eaten, "'we buried old Tom in the sand "'and stood round him for a while bareheaded in the breeze. "'A good deal of firewood had been got in, "'but not enough for the captain's fancy,' and he shook his head over it, and told us we must get back to this tomorrow rather livelier. Then, when we had eaten our pork, and each had a good stiff glass of brandy grog, the three chiefs got together in a corner to discuss our prospects. It appears they were at their wits' end what to do, the stores being so low that we must have been starved into surrender long before help came, but our best hope, it was decided, was to kill off the buccaneers until they either hauled down their flag or ran away with the Hispaniola. From nineteen they were already reduced to fifteen. Two others were wounded, and one at least, the man shot beside the gun, severely wounded if he were not dead. Every time we had a crack at them we were to take it, saving our own lives with the extremest care. And besides that we had two able allies, rum and the climate. As for the first, though we were about half a mile away, we could hear them roaring and singing late into the night, and as for the second, the doctor staked his wig that, camped where they were in the marsh and unprovided with remedies, the half of them would be on their backs before a week. So, he added, if we are not all shot down first, they'll be glad to be packing in the schooner. It's always a ship, and they can get to buccaneering again, I suppose. First ship that ever I lost,' said Captain Smollett. "'I was dead tired, as you may fancy, "'and when I got to sleep, which was not till after a great deal of tossing, "'I slept like a log of wood. "'The rest had long been up, and had already breakfasted, "'and increased the pile of firewood by about half as much again, "'when I was wakened by a bustle and the sound of voices. "'Flag of truce!' I heard someone say and then, immediately after, with a cry of surprise, Silver himself! And at that, up I jumped, and rubbing my eyes, ran to a loophole in the wall. Chapter 20 Silver's Embassy 
Sure enough, there were two men just outside the stockade. One of them waving a white cloth. The other, no less a person than Silver himself, standing placidly by. It was still quite early, and the coldest morning that I think I ever was abroad in. A chill that pierced into the marrow. The sky was bright and cloudless overhead, and the tops of the trees shone rosily in the sun. But where Silver stood with his lieutenant, all was still in shadow, and they waded knee deep in a low white vapour that had crawled during the night out of the morass. The chill and the vapour taken together told a poor tale of the island. It was plainly a damp, feverish, unhealthy spot. Keep indoors, men," said the captain. "Tender one, this is a trick." Then he hailed the buccaneer. "All goes. Stand or we fire." Flag of truce! cried Silver. The captain was in the porch, keeping himself carefully out of the way of a treacherous shot. Should any be intended, he turned and spoke to us. Doctor's watch on the lookout. Doctor Livesey, take the north side if you please. Jim, the east. Gray, west. The watch below. All hands to load muskets. Lively men and careful. And then he turned again to the mutineers. And what do you want with your flag of truce? He cried. This time it was the other man who replied. Captain Silver, sir, to come on board and make terms. He shouted. Captain Silver, don't know him. Who's he? Cried the captain, and we could hear him adding to himself, "Captain, is it? My heart and ears, promotion." Long John answered for himself, "Me, sir." These poor lads have chosen me captain after your desertion, sir. Laying a particular emphasis upon the word desertion, we are willing to submit if we can come to terms, and no bones about it. All I ask is your word, Captain Smollett, to let me safe and sound out of this here stockade, and one minute to get out a shot before a gun is fired. My man," said Captain Smollett, "I have not the slightest desire to talk to you. If you wish to talk to me, you can come. That's all. If there's any treachery, it'll be on your side, and the Lord help you." That's enough, Captain," shouted Long John cheerily. "A word from you's enough. I know a gentleman, and you may lay to that." We could see the man who carried the flag of truce attempting to hold Silver back. Nor was that wonderful, seeing how cavalier had been the captain's answer. But Silver laughed at him aloud and slapped him on the back as if the idea of alarm had been absurd. Then he advanced to the stockade, threw over his crutch, got a leg up, and with great vigor and skill succeeded in surmounting the fence and dropping safely to the other side. I will confess that I was far too much taken up with what was going on to be of the slightest use as sentry. Indeed, I had already deserted my eastern loophole and crept up behind the captain, who had now seated himself on the threshold with his elbows on his knees, his head in his hands, and his eyes fixed on the water as it bubbled out of the old iron kettle in the sand. He was whistling to himself, "Come, lasses and lads." Silver had terrible hard work getting up the knoll. What with the steepness of the incline, the thick tree stumps, and the soft sand. He and his crutch were as helpless as a ship in stays, 
but he stuck to it like a man in silence, and at last arrived before the captain, whom he saluted in the handsomest style. He was tricked out in his best. An immense blue coat, thick with brass buttons, hung as low as to his knees, and a fine laced hat was set on the back of his head. Here you are, my man," said the captain, raising his head. "You had better sit down." "You ain't a going to let me inside, Captain," complained Long John. "It's a main cold morning, to be sure, sir, to sit outside upon the sand." "Why, Silver," said the captain, "if you had pleased to be an honest man, you might have been sitting in your galley. It's your own doing. You're either my ship's cook, and then you were treated handsome." Or Captain Silver, a common mutineer and pirate, and then you can go hang. Well, well, Captain," returned the sea cook, sitting down as he was bidden on the sand. "You'll have to give me a hand up again. That's all. A sweet, pretty place you have of it here. Ah, ah, there's Jim. The top of the morning to you, Jim. Doctor, here's my service. Why, there you all are together, like a happy family, in a manner of speaking. If you have anything to say, my man, better say it," said the captain. "Right, you were, Captain Smollett," replied Silver. "Duty is duty, to be sure. Well, now you look here. That was a good lay of yours last night. I don't deny it was a good lay. Some of you pretty handy with handspike end, and I'll not deny neither. But what some of my people was shook. Maybe all was shook. Maybe I was shook myself. Maybe that's why I'm here for terms. But you mark me, Captain. It won't do twice by thunder. We'll have to do sentry go and ease off a point or so on the rum. And maybe you think we were all a sheet in the wind's eye. But I'll tell you, I was sober. I was only dog tired. And if I'd awoke a second sooner, I'd have caught you at the act. I would. He wasn't dead when I got round to him, not he. Well, says Captain Smollett, as cool as he can be. All that Silver said was a riddle to him, but you would never have guessed it from his tone. As for me, I began to have an inkling. Ben Gunn's last words came back to my mind. I began to suppose that he had paid the buccaneers a visit while they all lay drunk together round their fire, and I reckoned up with glee that we had only fourteen enemies to deal with. Well, here it is," said Silver. "We want that treasure, and we'll have it. That's our point. You would just as soon save your lives, I reckon, and that's yours. You have a chart, haven't you?" "That's as maybe," replied the captain. "Oh well, you have. I know that." Returned Long John, "You needn't be so husky with a man. There ain't a particle of service in that, and you may lay to it. What I mean is, we want your chart. Now, I never meant you no harm myself. That won't do with me, my man," interrupted the captain. "We know exactly what you meant to do, and we don't care. For now, you see, you can't do it." And the captain looked at him calmly and proceeded to fill a pipe. If Abe Gray 
Silver broke out. Avast there, cried Mr. Smollett. Gray told me nothing, and I asked him nothing. And what's more, I would see you and him and this whole island blown clean out of the water into blazes first. So there's my mind for you, my man, on that. This little whiff of temper seemed to cool Silver down. He had been growing nettled before, but now he pulled himself together. Like enough, said he. I would set no limits to what gentlemen might consider shipshape, or might not, as the case were. And seeing as how you were about to take a pipe, Captain, I'll make so free as to do likewise. And he filled a pipe and lighted it, and the two men sat silently smoking for quite a while, now looking each other in the face, now stopping their tobacco, now leaning forward to spit. It was as good as the play to see them. Now, resumed Silver, here it is. You give us the chart to get the treasure by, and drop shootin' poor seamen and stovin' of their heads in while asleep. You do that, and we'll offer you a choice. Either you come aboard along of us once the treasure's shipped, and then I'll give you my avy davy upon my word of honour to clap you somewhere safe ashore. Or if that ain't to your fancy, some of my hands being rough and having old scores on account of hazing, then you can stay here, you can. We'll divide stores with you, man for man, and I'll give my affy Davy, as before, to speak the first ship I sight and send him here to pick you up. Now, you loan that's talking. Handsomer you couldn't look to get, not you. And I hope, raising his voice, that all hands in this here blockhouse will overhaul my words, for what is spoke to one, he spoke to all. Captain Smollett rose from his seat and knocked out the ashes of his pipe in the palm of his left hand. Is that all? he asked. Every last word by thunder, answered John. Refuse that! And you've seen the last of me but musket balls. Very good, said the captain. Now you'll hear me. If you'll come up one by one unarmed, I'll engage to clap you all in irons and take you home to a fair trial in England. If you won't, my name is Alexander Smollett. I've flown my sovereign's colours and I'll see you all to Davy Jones. You can't find the treasure. You can't sail the ship. There's not a man among you fit to sail the ship. You can't fight us. Grey there got away from five of you. Your ship's in irons, Master Silver. You're on a lee shore, and so you'll find. I stand here and tell you so. And they're the last good words you'll get from me, for in the name of heaven I'll put a bullet in your back when next I meet you. Tramp, my lad. Bundle out of this, please, hand over hand and double quick. Silver's face was a picture. His eyes started in his head with wrath. He shook the fire out of his pipe. Give me a hand up, he cried. Not I, returned the captain. Who give me a hand up, he roared. Not a man among us moved. Growling the foulest imprecations, he crawled along the sand till he got hold of the porch and could hoist himself again upon his crutch. Then he spat into the spring. There! he cried. That's what I think of ye. Before an hour's out, 
I'll stove in your old blockhouse like a rum punchin. Laugh, by thunder, laugh. Before an hour's out, you'll laugh upon the other side. Them that die will be the lucky ones. And with a dreadful oath, he stumbled off, ploughed down the sand, was helped across the stockade after four or five failures by the man with the flag of truce, and disappeared in an instant afterwards among the trees. Chapter 21 The Attack As soon as Silver disappeared, the captain, who had been closely watching him, turned towards the interior of the house and found not a man of us at his post but Grey. It was the first time we had ever seen him angry. Quarters! he roared. And then, as we all slunk back to our places, Grey, he said, I'll put your name in the log. You've stood by your duty like a seaman. Mr. Trelawney, I'm surprised at you, sir. Doctor, I thought you had worn the king's coat. If that was how you served at Fontenoy, sir, you'd have been better in your berth. The doctor's watch were all back at their loopholes. The rest were busy loading the spare muskets, and everyone with a red face, you may be certain, and a flea in his ear, as the saying is. The captain looked on for a while in silence. Then he spoke. My lads, said he, I've given silver a broadside. I pitched it in red-hot on purpose, and before the hour's out, as he said, we shall be boarded. We're outnumbered, I needn't tell you that, but we fight in shelter, and a minute ago I should have said we fought with discipline. I've no manner of doubt that we can drub em, if you choose. Then he went the rounds and saw, as he said, that all was clear. On the two short sides of the house, east and west, there were only two loopholes, on the south side, where the porch was, two again, and on the north side, five. There was a round score of muskets for the seven of us. The firewood had been built into four piles, tables, you might say, one about the middle of each side, and on each of these tables some ammunition and four loaded muskets were laid ready to the hand of the defenders. In the middle, the cutlasses lay ranged. "'Toss out the fire,' said the captain. "'The chill is past, and we mustn't have smoke in our eyes.' The iron fire-basket was carried bodily out by Mr. Trelawney, and the embers smothered among sand. "'Hawkins hasn't had his breakfast. Hawkins, help yourself, and back to your post to eat it,' continued Captain Smollett. "'Lively now, my lad. You'll want it before you've done. Hunter, serve out a round of brandy to all hands.' And while this was going on, the captain completed, in his own mind, the plan of the defence. "'Doctor!' "'You will take the door,' he resumed. "'See and don't expose yourself. "'Keep within and fire through the porch. "'Hunter, take the east side there. "'Joyce, you stand by the west, my man. "'Mr. Trelawney, you are the best shot. "'You and Grey will take this long north side "'with the five loopholes. "'It's there the danger is. "'If they could get up to it and fire in upon us "'through our own ports, things would begin to look dirty. "'Hawkins, neither you nor I are much account at the shooting.' We'll stand by to load and bear a hand. As the captain had said, the chill was past. As soon as the sun had climbed above our girdle of trees, it fell with all its force upon the clearing and drank up the vapours at a draught. Soon the sand was baking and the resin melting in the logs of the blockhouse. Jackets and coats were flung aside, shirts thrown open at the neck and rolled up to the shoulders, and we stood there, each at his post, in a fever of heat and anxiety. An hour passed away. 
Hang them, said the captain. This is as dull as the doldrums. Grey, whistle for a wind. And just at that moment came the first news of the attack. If you please, sir, said Joyce, if I see any one, am I to fire? I told you so, cried the captain. Thank you, sir, returned Joyce with the same quiet civility. Nothing followed for a time, but the remark had set us all on the alert, straining ears and eyes. The musketeers, with their pieces balanced in their hands, the captain out in the middle of the blockhouse with his mouth very tight and a frown on his face. So some seconds passed, till suddenly Joyce whipped up his musket and fired. The report had scarcely died away ere it was repeated and repeated from without in a scattering volley, shot behind shot like a string of geese from every side of the enclosure. Several bullets struck the log-house, but not one entered, and as the smoke cleared away and vanished, the stockade and the woods around it looked as quiet and empty as before. Not a bow waved, not the gleam of a musket barrel betrayed the presence of our foes. "'Did you hit your man?' asked the captain. "'No, sir,' replied Joyce. "'I believe not, sir.' "'Next best thing to tell the truth,' muttered Captain Smollett. "'Load his gun, Hawkins. "'How many should you say there were on your side, doctor?' "'I know precisely,' said Dr. Livesey. Three shots were fired on this side. "'I saw the three flashes, two close together, one farther to the west.' Three, repeated the captain. "'And how many on yours, Mr. Trelawney?' "'But this was not so easily answered.' There had come many from the north, seven by the squire's computation, eight or nine according to Gray. From the east and west only a single shot had been fired. It was plain, therefore, that the attack would be developed from the north, and that on the other three sides we were only to be annoyed by a show of hostilities. But Captain Smollett made no change in his arrangements. If the mutineers succeeded in crossing the stockade, he argued, they would take possession of any unprotected loophole and shoot us down like rats in our own stronghold. Nor had we much time to us for thought. Suddenly, with a loud huzzah, a little cloud of pirates leaped from the woods on the north side and ran straight on the stockade. At the same moment, the fire was once more opened from the woods, and a rifle ball sang through the doorway and knocked the doctor's musket into bits. The boarders swarmed over the fence like monkeys, Squire and Gray fired again and yet again. Three men fell, one forwards into the enclosure, two back on the outside. But of these, one was evidently more frightened than hurt, for he was on his feet again in a crack and instantly disappeared among the trees. Two had bit the dust. One had fled, four had made good their footing inside our defences while from the shelter of the woods seven or eight men, each evidently supplied with several muskets, kept up a hot, though useless, fire on the log-house. The four who had boarded made straight before them for the building, shouting as they ran, and the men among the trees shouted back to encourage them. Several shots were fired, but such was the hurry of the marksmen that not one appears to have taken effect. In a moment the four pirates had swarmed up the mound and were upon us, the head of Job Anderson, the boatswain, appeared at the middle loophole. At em! All hands! All hands! he roared in a voice of thunder. At the same moment, another pirate grasped Hunter's musket by the muzzle, wrenched it from his hands, plucked it through the loophole, and with one stunning blow laid the poor fellow senseless on the floor. Meanwhile, a third, running unharmed all around the house, appeared suddenly in the doorway and fell with his cutlass on the door. 
our position was utterly reversed. A moment since we were firing under cover at an exposed enemy. Now it was we who lay uncovered and could not return a blow. The log-house was full of smoke, to which we owed our comparative safety. Cries and confusion, the flashes and reports of pistol shots, and one loud groan rang in my ears. "'Out, lads, out, and fight em in the open! Cutlasses!' cried the captain. I'd snatched a cutlass from the pile, and someone at the same time snatching another gave me a cut across the knuckles which I hardly felt. I dashed out of the door into the clear sunlight. Someone was close behind, I knew not whom. Right in front, the doctor was pursuing his assailant down the hill, and just as my eyes fell upon him, beat down his guard and sent him sprawling on his back with a great slash across the face. "'Round the house, lads! Round the house!' cried the captain, and even in the hurly-burly I perceived a change in his voice. Mechanically I obeyed, turned eastwards, and with my cutlass raised, ran round the corner of the house. Next moment I was face to face with Anderson. He roared aloud, and his hanger went up above his head, flashing in the sunlight. I had not time to be afraid, but as the blow still hung impending, leaped in a trice upon one side, and missing my foot in the soft sand, rolled headlong down the slope. When I had first sallied from the door, the other mutineers had been already swarming up the palisade to make an end of us. One man in a red nightcap, with his cutlass in his mouth, had even got upon the top and thrown a leg across. Well, so short had been the interval, that when I found my feet again, all was in the same posture, the fellow with the red nightcap still halfway over, another still showing his head above the top of the stockade, and yet in this breath of time the fight was over and the victory was ours. Gray, following close behind me, had cut down the big boatswain ere he had time to recover from his lost blow. Another had been shot at a loophole in the very act of firing into the house, and now lay in agony, the pistol still smoking in his hand. A third, as I had seen, the doctor had disposed of at a blow. Of the four who had scaled the palisade, only one remained unaccounted for, and he, having left his cutlass on the field, was now clambering out again with the fear of death upon him. "'Fire! Fire from the house!' cried the doctor. "'And you lads, back into cover!' but his words were unheeded. No shot was fired, and the last boarder made good his escape and disappeared with the rest into the wood. In three seconds nothing remained of the attacking party but the five who had fallen, four on the inside and one on the outside of the palisade. The doctor and Gray and I ran full speed for shelter. The survivors would soon be back where they had left their muskets, and at any moment the fire might recommence. The house was by this time somewhat cleared of smoke, and we saw at a glance the price we had paid for victory. Hunter lay beside his loophole stunned, Joyce by his shot through the head, never to move again, while right in the centre the squire was supporting the captain, one as pale as the other. "'The captain's wounded,' said Mr. Trelawney. "'Have they run?' asked Mr. Smollett. "'All that could, you may be bound,' returned the doctor." "'but there's five of them will never run again.' Five cried the captain. "'Come, that's better. Five against three leaves us four to nine. "'That's better odds than we had at starting. "'We were seven to nineteen then, or thought we were, "'and that's as bad to bear.' "'The mutineers were soon only eight in number, "'for the man shot by Mr. Trelawney on board the schooner "'died that same evening of his wound.' But this was, of course, not known till after by our faithful party.
Part Five, My Sea Adventure, Chapter Twenty Two, How My Sea Adventure Began. There was no return of the mutineers, not so much as another shot out of the woods. They had got their rations for that day, as the captain put it, and we had the place to ourselves and a quiet time to overhaul the wounded and get dinner. Squire and I cooked outside in spite of the danger, and even outside we could hardly tell what we were at for horror of the loud groans that reached us from the doctor's patients. Out of the eight men who had fallen in the action, only three still breathed. That one of the pirates who had been shot at the loophole, Hunter and Captain Smollett, and of these the first two were as good as dead. The mutineer indeed died under the doctor's knife, and Hunter, do what we could, never recovered consciousness in this world. He lingered all day, breathing loudly like the old buccaneer at home in his apoplectic fit, but the bones of his chest had been crushed by the blow, and his skull fractured in falling, and some time in the following night. Without sign or sound, he went to his maker. As for the captain, his wounds were grievous indeed, but not dangerous. No organ was fatally injured. Anderson's ball, for it was Job that shot him first, had broken his shoulder blade and touched the lung not badly. The second had only torn and displaced some muscles in the calf. He was sure to recover. The doctor said. But in the meantime, and for weeks to come, he must not walk nor move his arm, nor so much as speak when he could help it. My own accidental cut across the knuckles was a flea bite. Doctor Livesey patched it up with plaster and pulled my ears for me into the bargain. After dinner, the squire and the doctor sat by the captain's side a while in consultation, and when they had talked to their hearts' content, it being then a little past noon, the doctor took up his hat and pistols, girt on a cutlass. Put the chart in his pocket, and with a musket over his shoulder, crossed the palisade on the north side and set off briskly through the trees. Gray and I were sitting together at the far end of the blockhouse to be out of earshot of our officers consulting, and Gray took his pipe out of his mouth and fairly forgot to put it back again. So thunderstruck he was at this occurrence. Why in the name of Davy Jones said he, "Is Doctor Livesey mad?" Why no, says I. He's about the last of this crew for that, I take it. Well, shipmate said Gray, "Mad he may not be, but if he's not, you mark my words, I am." I take it," replied I. "The doctor has his idea, and if I am right, he's going now to see Ben Gunn." I was right, as appeared later. But in the meantime, the house being stifling hot, and the little patch of sand inside the palisade ablaze with midday sun, I began to get another thought into my head. Which was not by any means so right. What I began to do was to envy the doctor walking in the cool shadow of the woods, with the birds about him and the pleasant smell of the pines, while I sat drilling with my clothes stuck to the hot resin, and so much blood about me and so many poor dead bodies lying all round that I took a disgust of the place that was almost as strong as fear. All the time I was washing out the blockhouse and then washing up the things from dinner. This disgust and envy kept growing stronger and stronger, till at last, being near a bread bag and no one then observing me, I took the first step towards my escapade and filled both pockets of my coat with biscuit. I was a fool, if you like, and certainly I was going to do a foolish, overbold act, but I was determined to do it with all the precautions in my power. These biscuits, should anything befall me, would keep me at least from starving till far on in the next day. 
The next thing I laid hold of was a brace of pistols, and as I already had a powder horn and bullets, I felt myself well supplied with arms. As for the scheme I had in my head, it was not a bad one in itself. I was to go down the sandy spit that divides the anchorage on the east from the open sea, find the white rock I had observed last evening, and ascertain whether it was there or not that Ben Gunn had hidden his boat. A thing quite worth doing, I still believe. But as I was certain I should not be allowed to leave the enclosure, my only plan was to take French leave and slip out when nobody was watching, and that was so bad a way of doing it as made the thing itself wrong. But I was only a boy, and I had made my mind up. Well, as things at last fell out, I found an admirable opportunity. The squire and Gray were busy helping the captain with his bandages. The coast was clear. I made a bolt for it over the stockade and into the thickest of the trees, and before my absence was observed, I was out of cry of my companions. This was my second folly, far worse than the first, as I left but two sound men to guard the house, but like the first, it was a help towards saving all of us. I took my way straight for the east coast of the island, for I was determined to go down the seaside of the spit to avoid all chance of observation from the anchorage. It was already late in the afternoon, although still warm and sunny. As I continued to thread the tall woods, I could hear from far before me not only the continuous thunder of the surf, but a certain tossing of foliage and grinding of boughs which showed me the sea breeze had set in higher than usual. Soon cool draughts of air began to reach me, and a few steps farther I came forth into the open borders of the grove and saw the sea lying blue and sunny to the horizon and the surf tumbling and tossing its foam along the beach. I have never seen the sea quiet round Treasure Island. The sun might blaze overhead, the air be without a breath, the surface smooth and blue, but still these great rollers would be running along all the external coast, thundering and thundering by day and night and I scarce believe there is one spot in the island where a man would be out of earshot of their noise. I walked along beside the surf with great enjoyment, till, thinking I was now got far enough to the south, I took the cover of some thick bushes and crept warily up to the ridge of the spit. Behind me was the sea, in front the anchorage. The sea breeze, as though it had the sooner blown itself out by its unusual violence, was already at an end. It had been succeeded by light, variable airs from the south and southeast, carrying great banks of fog, and the anchorage, under lee of Skeleton Island, lay still and leaden as when we first entered it. The Hispaniola, in that unbroken mirror, was exactly portrayed from the truck to the waterline, the Jolly Roger hanging from her peak. Alongside lay one of the gigs, silver in the stern sheets, him I could always recognise, while a couple of men were leaning over the stern bulwarks, one of them with a red cap, the very rogue that I had seen some hours before stride legs upon the palisade. Apparently they were talking and laughing, though at that distance, upwards of a mile, I could of course hear no word of what was said. All at once there began the most horrid unearthly screaming, which at first startled me badly, though I had soon remembered the voice of Captain Flint, and even thought I could make out the bird by her bright plumage as she sat perched upon her master's wrist. Soon after, the jolly boat shoved off and pulled for shore, and the man with the red cap and his comrade went below by the cabin companion. Just about the same time, the sun had gone down behind the spyglass, 
and as the fog was collecting rapidly, it began to grow dark in earnest. I saw I must lose no time if I were to find the boat that evening. The white rock, visible enough above the brush, was still some eighth of a mile further down the spit, and it took me a goodish while to get up with it, crawling, often on all fours, among the scrub. Night had almost come when I laid my hand on its rough sides. Right below it there was an exceedingly small hollow of green turf, hidden by banks, and a very thick underwood, about knee-deep, that grew there very plentifully, and in the centre of the dell, sure enough, a little tent of goat-skins, like what the gypsies carry about with them in England. I dropped into the hollow, lifted the side of the tent, and there was Ben Gunn's boat, home-made if ever anything was home-made, a rude, lopsided framework of tough wood, and stretched upon that a covering of goat-skin with the hair inside. The thing was extremely small, even for me, and I can hardly imagine that it could have floated with a full-sized man. There was one thwart set as low as possible, a kind of stretcher in the bows, and a double paddle for propulsion. I had not then seen a coracle such as the ancient Britons made, but I have seen one since, and I can give you no fairer idea of Ben Gunn's boat than by saying it was like the first and the worst coracle ever made by man, but the great advantage of the coracle it certainly possessed, for it was exceedingly light and portable. Well, now that I had found the boat, you would have thought I had had enough of truantry for once, but in the meantime I had taken another notion, and become so obstinately fond of it, that I would have carried it out, I believe, in the teeth of Captain Smollett himself. This was to slip out under cover of the night, cut the Hispaniola adrift, and let her go ashore where she fancied. I had quite made up my mind that the mutineers, after their repulse of the morning, had nothing nearer their hearts than to up anchor and away to sea. This, I thought, it would be a fine thing to prevent, and now that I had seen how they left their watchman unprovided with a boat, I thought it might be done with little risk. Down I sat to wait for darkness, and made a hearty meal of biscuit. It was a night out of ten thousand for my purpose. The fog had now buried all heaven. As the last rays of daylight dwindled and disappeared, absolute blackness settled down on Treasure Island, and when at last I shouldered the coracle and groped my way stumblingly out of the hollow where I had supped, there were but two points visible on the whole anchorage. One was the great fire on shore, by which the defeated pirates lay carousing in the swamp, the other, a mere blur of light upon the darkness, indicated the position of the anchored ship. She had swung round to the ebb, her bow was now towards me, the only lights on board were in the cabin, and what I saw was merely a reflection on the fog of the strong rays that flowed from the stern window. The ebb had already run some time, and I had to wade through a long belt of swampy sand, where I sank several times above the ankle, before I came to the edge of the retreating water, and wading a little way in, with some strength and dexterity, set my coracle keel downwards on the surface. Chapter 23. The Ebb Tide Runs The coracle, as I had ample reason to know before I was done with her, was a very safe boat for a person of my height and weight, both buoyant and clever in a seaway, but she was the most cross-grained, lopsided craft to manage, 
Do as you pleased, she always made more leeway than anything else, and turning round and round was the manoeuvre she was best at. Even Ben Gunn himself has admitted that she was queer to handle till you knew her way. Certainly I did not know her way. She turned in every direction but the one I was bound to go. The most part of the time we were broadside on, and I am very sure I never should have made the ship at all but for the tide. By good fortune, paddle as I pleased, the tide was still sweeping me down, and there lay the Hispaniola, right in the fairway, hardly to be missed. First she loomed before me like a blot of something yet blacker than darkness. Then her spars and hull began to take shape, and the next moment, as it seemed, for the farther I went the brisker grew the current of the ebb, I was alongside of her hawser and had laid hold. The hawser was as taut as a bowstring, and the current so strong she pulled upon her anchor. All round the hull in the blackness the rippling current bubbled and chattered like a mountain stream. One cut with my sea-gully, and the Hispaniola would go humming down the tide. So far, so good. But it next occurred to my recollection that a taut hawser, suddenly cut, is a thing as dangerous as a kicking horse. Ten to one, if I were so foolhardy as to cut the Hispaniola from her anchor, I and the coracle would be knocked clean out of the water. This brought me to a full stop, and if fortune had not again particularly favoured me, I should have had to abandon my design. But the light airs which had begun blowing from the south-east and south had hauled round after nightfall into the south-west. Just while I was meditating, a puff came, caught the Hispaniola, and forced her up into the current, and to my great joy I felt the hawser slacken in my grasp, and the hand by which I held it dip for a second under water. With that I made up my mind, took out my gully, opened it with my teeth, and cut one strand after another till the vessel swung only by two. Then I lay quiet, waiting to sever these last when the strain should be once more lightened by a breath of wind. All this time I had heard the sound of loud voices from the cabin, but to say truth my mind had been so entirely taken up with other thoughts that I had scarcely given ear. Now, however, when I had nothing else to do, I began to pay more heed. One I recognised were the coxswain's, Israel Hands, that had been Flint's gunner in former days. The other was, of course, my friend of the red nightcap, both men were plainly the worse of drink, and they were still drinking, for even while I was listening one of them, with a drunken cry, opened the stern window and threw out something which I divined to be an empty bottle. But they were not only tipsy. It was plain that they were furiously angry. Oaths flew like hailstones, and every now and then there came forth such an explosion as I thought was sure to end in blows. But each time the quarrel passed off and the voices grumbled lower for a while, until the next crisis came, and in its turn passed away without result. On shore I could see the glow of the great campfire burning warmly through the shoreside trees. Someone was singing a dull old droning sailor song, with a droop and a quaver at the end of every verse, and seemingly no end to it at all but the patience of the singer. I had heard it on the voyage more than once, and remembered these words— but one man of her crew alive, what put to sea with seventy-five. And I thought it was a ditty rather too dolefully appropriate for a company that had met such cruel losses in the morning. 
but indeed, from what I saw, all these buccaneers were as callous as the sea they sailed on. At last the breeze came. The schooner sidled and drew nearer in the dark. I felt the hawser slacken once more, and with a good, tough effort cut the last fibres through. The breeze had but little action on the coracle, and I was almost instantly swept against the bows of the Hispaniola. At the same time the schooner began to turn upon her heel, spinning slowly, end for end, across the current. I wrought like a fiend, for I expected every moment to be swamped, and since I found I could not push the coracle directly off, I now shoved straight astern. At length I was clear of my dangerous neighbour, and just as I gave the last impulsion, my hands came across a light cord that was trailing overboard across the stern bulwarks. Instantly I grasped it. Why I should have done so I can hardly say. It was at first mere instinct, but once I had it in my hands and found it fast, curiosity began to get the upper hand, and I determined I should have one look through the cabin window. I pulled in hand over hand on the cord, and when I judged myself near enough, rose at infinite risk to about half my height, and thus commanded the roof and a slice of the interior of the cabin. By this time the schooner and her little consort were gliding pretty swiftly through the water. Indeed, we had already fetched up level with the campfire. The ship was talking, as sailors say, loudly, treading the innumerable ripples with an incessant, weltering splash and until I got my eye above the window-sill, I could not comprehend why the watchman had taken no alarm. One glance, however, was sufficient, and it was only one glance that I durst take from that unsteady skiff. It showed me Hans and his companion locked together in deadly wrestle, each with a hand upon the other's throat. I dropped upon the thwart again none too soon, for I was near overboard, I could see nothing for the moment but these two furious and crimsoned faces swaying together under the smoky lamp, and I shut my eyes to let them grow once more familiar with the darkness. The endless ballad had come to an end at last, and the whole diminished company about the campfire had broken into the chorus I had heard so often. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, ho, and a bottle of rum, drink and the devil had done for the rest, yo-ho-ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. I was just thinking how busy drink and the devil were at that very moment in the cabin of the Hispaniola, when I was surprised by a sudden lurch of the coracle. At the same moment she yawed sharply and seemed to change her course. The speed in the meantime had strangely increased. I opened my eyes at once. All round me were little ripples, combing over with a sharp, bristling sound, and slightly phosphorescent. The Hispaniola herself, a few yards in whose wake I was still being whirled along, seemed to stagger in her course, and I saw her spars toss a little against the blackness of the night. Nay, as I looked longer, I made sure she also was wheeling to the southward. I glanced over my shoulder, and my heart jumped against my ribs. There, right behind me, was the glow of the campfire. The current had turned at right angles, sweeping round along with it the tall schooner and the little dancing coracle. Ever quickening, ever bubbling higher, ever muttering louder, it went spinning through the narrows for the open sea. Suddenly the schooner in front of me gave a violent yaw, turning perhaps through twenty degrees, and almost at the same moment one shout followed another from on board. I could hear feet pounding on the companion ladder, and I knew that the two drunkards had at last been interrupted in their quarrel and awakened to a sense of their disaster.
I lay down flat in the bottom of that wretched skiff and devoutly recommended my spirit to its maker. At the end of the straits I made sure we must fall into some bar of raging breakers, where all my troubles would be ended speedily. And though I could perhaps bear to die, I could not bear to look upon my fate as it approached. So I must have lain for hours, continually beaten to and fro upon the billows, now and again wetted with flying sprays, and never ceasing to expect death at the next plunge. Gradually weariness grew upon me, a numbness, an occasional stupor, fell upon my mind even in the midst of my terrors, until sleep at last supervened, and in my sea-tossed coracle I lay and dreamed of home and the old Admiral Benbow. Chapter 24 The Cruise of the Coracle It was broad day when I awoke and found myself tossing at the southwest end of Treasure Island. The sun was up, but was still hid from me behind the great bulk of the spyglass, which on this side descended almost to the sea in formidable cliffs. Hall-Bowlin Head and Mizzenmast Hill were at my elbow, the hill bare and dark, the head bound with cliffs forty or fifty feet high, and fringed with great masses of fallen rock. I was scarce a quarter of a mile to seaward, and it was my first thought to paddle in and land. That notion was soon given over. Among the fallen rocks the breakers spouted and bellowed, loud reverberations, heavy sprays flying and falling succeeded one another from second to second, and I saw myself, if I ventured nearer, dashed to death upon the rough shore, or spending my strength in vain to scale the beetling crags. Nor was that all, for crawling together on flat tables of rock, or letting themselves drop into the sea with loud reports, I beheld huge, slimy monsters, soft snails, as it were, of incredible bigness, two or three score of them making the rocks to echo with their barkings. I have understood since that they were sea-lions and entirely harmless, but the look of them, added to the difficulty of the shore and the high running of the surf, was more than enough to disgust me of that landing-place. I felt willing rather to starve at sea than to confront such perils. In the meantime I had a better chance, as I supposed, before me. North of Holbolin Head the land runs in a long way, leaving at low tide a long stretch of yellow sand. To the north of that, again, there comes another cape, Cape of the Woods, as it was marked upon the chart, buried in tall green pines, which descended to the margin of the sea. I remembered what Silver had said about the current that sets northward along the whole west coast of Treasure Island, and seeing from my position that I was already under its influence, I preferred to leave Hallbowlin Head behind me and reserve my strength for an attempt to land upon the kindly-looking Cape of the Woods. There was a great smooth swell upon the sea, the wind blowing steady and gentle from the south. There was no contrariety between that and the current, and the billows rose and fell unbroken. Had it been otherwise, I must long ago have perished, but as it was, it is surprising how easily and securely my little and light boat could ride. Often as I lay at the bottom and kept no more than an eye above the gunwale, I would see a big blue summit heaving close above me, yet the coracle would but bounce a little, dance as if on springs, and subside on the other side into the trough as lightly as a bird. I began after a little to grow very bold, and sat up to try my skill at paddling, but even a small change in the disposition of the weight will produce violent changes in the behaviour of a coracle, 
and I had hardly moved before the boat, giving up at once her gentle dancing movement, ran straight down a slope of water so steep that it made me giddy and struck her nose with a spout of spray deep into the side of the next wave. I was drenched and terrified and fell instantly back into my old position, whereupon the coracle seemed to find her head again and led me as softly as before among the billows. It was plain she was not to be interfered with, and at that rate, since I could in no way influence her course, what hope had I left of reaching land? I began to be horribly frightened, but I kept my head for all that. First, moving with all care, I gradually bailed out the coracle with my sea-cap, then, getting my eye once more above the gunwale, I set myself to study how it was she managed to slip so quietly through the rollers. I found each wave, instead of the big, smooth, glossy mountain it looks from shore or from a vessel's deck, was for all the world like any range of hills on the dry land, full of peaks and smooth places and valleys. The coracle left to herself, turning from side to side, threaded, so to speak, her way through these lower parts and avoided the steep slopes and higher, toppling summits of the wave. Well now, thought I to myself, it is plain I must lie where I am and not disturb the balance, but it is plain also that I can put the paddle over the side and from time to time, in smooth places, give her a shove or two towards land. No sooner thought upon than done. There I lay on my elbows in the most trying attitude, and every now and again gave a weak stroke or two to turn her head to shore. It was very tiring and slow work, yet I did visibly gain ground, and as we drew near the Cape of the Woods, though I saw I must infallibly miss that point, I had still made some hundred yards of easting. I was indeed close in. I could see the cool green treetops swaying together in the breeze, and I felt sure I should make the next promontory without fail. It was high time, for I now began to be tortured with thirst. The glow of the sun from above, its thousandfold reflection from the waves, the sea-water that fell and dried upon me, caking my very lips with salt, combined to make my throat burn and my brain ache. The sight of the trees so near at hand had almost made me sick with longing, but the current had soon carried me past the point, and as the next reach of sea opened out, I beheld a sight that changed the nature of my thoughts. Right in front of me, not half a mile away, I beheld the Hispaniola under sail. I made sure, of course, that I should be taken, but I was so distressed for want of water that I scarce knew whether to be glad or sorry at the thought, and long before I had come to a conclusion, surprise had taken entire possession of my mind, and I could do nothing but stare and wonder. The Hispaniola was under her mainsail and two jibs, and the beautiful white canvas shone in the sun like snow or silver. When I first sighted her, all her sails were drawing. She was lying a course about northwest and I presumed the men on board were going round the island on their way back to the anchorage. Presently she began to fetch more and more to the westward, so that I thought they had sighted me, and were going about in a chase. At last, however, she fell right into the wind's eye, was taken dead aback, and stood there a while helpless, with her sails shivering. "'Clumsy fellows,' said I, "'they must still be drunk as owls,' and I thought how Captain Smollett would have set them skipping.' Meanwhile the schooner gradually fell off, and filled again upon another tack, sailed swiftly for a minute or so, and brought up once more, dead in the wind's eye. Again and again was this repeated, to and fro, up and down, north, south, east and west, 
the Hispaniola sailed by swoops and dashes, and at each repetition ended as she had begun, with idly flapping canvas. It became plain to me that nobody was steering, and if so, where were the men? Either they were dead drunk, or had deserted her, I thought, and perhaps if I could get on board, I might return the vessel to her captain. The current was bearing coracle and schooner southward at an equal rate. As for the latter's sailing, it was so wild and intermittent, and she hung each time so long in irons, that she certainly gained nothing if she did not even lose. If only I dared to sit up and paddle, I made sure that I could overhaul her. The scheme had an air of adventure that inspired me, and the thought of the water-breaker beside the four companion doubled my growing courage. Up I got, was welcomed almost instantly by another cloud of spray, but this time stuck to my purpose and set myself with all my strength and caution to paddle after the unsteered Hispaniola. Once I shipped a sea so heavy that I had to stop and bail, with my heart fluttering like a bird, but gradually I got into the way of the thing, and guided my coracle among the waves, with only now and then a blow upon her bows and a dash of foam in my face. I was now gaining rapidly on the schooner. I could see the brass glisten on the tiller as it banged about, and still no soul appeared upon her decks. I could not choose but suppose she was deserted. If not, the men were lying drunk below, where I might batten them down, perhaps, and do what I chose with the ship. For some time she had been doing the worst thing possible for me, standing still. She headed nearly due south, yawing, of course, all the time. Each time she fell off, her sails partly filled, and these brought her in a moment right to the wind again. I have said this was the worst thing possible for me, for helpless as she looked in this situation, with the canvas cracking like cannon, and the blocks trundling and banging on the deck, she still continued to run away from me, not only with the speed of the current, but by the whole amount of her leeway, which was naturally great. But now at last I had my chance. The breeze fell for some seconds very low, and the current gradually turning her, the Hispaniola revolved slowly round her centre, and at last presented me her stern, with the cabin window still gaping open, and the lamp over the table still burning on into the day. The mainsail hung drooped like a banner. She was stock still, but for the current. For the last little while I had even lost, but now, redoubling my efforts, I began once more to overhaul the chase. I was not a hundred yards from her when the wind came again in a clap. She filled on the port tack and was off again, stooping and skimming like a swallow. My first impulse was one of despair, but my second was towards joy. Round she came till she was broadside on to me, round still till she had covered a half and then two-thirds and then three-quarters of the distance that separated us. I could see the waves boiling white under her forefoot. Immensely tall she looked to me from my low station in the coracle. And then, of a sudden, I began to comprehend. I had scarce time to think, scarce time to act and save myself. I was on the summit of one swell when the schooner came stooping over the next. I sprang to my feet and leaped, stamping the coracle under water. With one hand I caught the jib-boom, while my foot was lodged between the stay and the brace, and as I still clung there, panting, a dull blow told me that the schooner had charged down upon and struck the coracle, and that I was left without retreat on the Hispaniola.
This ends disc four.